Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And we're excited to yet again visit one of the more romantic romantic composers. Yes, that's right. Once again, Hector Berlioz. This time we're looking into his crowd-pleasing Roman Carnival Overture. And without further ado, let's get right into it. And if you would like to have some bio on Berlioz, we have done two other episodes of him, so go back and listen to those, please. So, for this overture, it was composed in 1843, but first performed in 1844. However, it was actually from reused material, and it was actually Berlioz's own material, thank goodness. This overture's themes actually started life in one of Berlioz's operas, Benvenuto Cellini. It was first premiered in 1838, but was only performed three times during its run before it was shut down. The opera Benvenuto Cellini, that is. There were a few times before the premiere of the overture that Berlioz tried to revive the opera, but the libretto was apparently pretty bad, and so even Berlioz's sparkling orchestration couldn't save it. The overture as it is today was never actually performed as part of the opera. Rather, Berlioz just took two themes from the opera and wove them together into this brand new piece. And apparently upon hearing this overture, the audience must have forgotten about the tragedy of the opera because this new concert overture was so well received that it had to be encored in full straight away. So then let's get into the music straight away as well. Once again, go back to one of our previous Berlioz episodes if you'd like to hear more about this uh, interesting young composer. <laughs> this interesting young gentleman. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the piece starts with a rousing flourish in the strings that leads to a shining brass fanfare. tricks us though with this initial rush of activity because the first real theme we get is an andante English horn solo. As we've spoken of before, Berlioz really loved program music. Of course, this theme being from an opera, the program is kind of built into it, but also recall in other works of his such as Symphony Fantastique, Berlioz actually used the English horn there as well to depict two shepherds mournfully calling to each other over the countryside. If you recall in the last episode, we talked a lot about leitmotifs when it came to Richard Wagner. Now, this isn't necessarily to the same level as Wagner's leitmotifs, but this theme that you hear And here, I don't think Berlioz would want to have this I called don't the think leitmotif. So either. <laughs> I don't think so either, but it, it, it 
serves a similar purpose to describe and underscore what's going on on the stage. And the theme that you're hearing here is the love theme from the opera, where the main character, Benvenuto Cellini, is declaring his love for Teresa. And soon we get the feminine voice joining in from the flutes and clarinets for a love duet. Out of this somewhat uncertain-sounding theme, the strings and flutes continue on with a more positive-sounding version of it. The English horn is also convinced to play in a major key here as well. So that's nice and lovely. But then the trumpets quietly enter in the background while the strings are still playing the love theme but now it's more march-like in style thanks to the brass and percussion. But it's not long before there's this little respite from the march. Here are some romantically beautiful, almost chorale-like moments. After that, we enter a transition section that feels a bit disjointed, as the violins and violas are playing wandering lines that don't really fit together. Then suddenly, the woodwinds play a fun little scale. It starts as an E major scale, though we are in the key of A, so we're working here in the dominant. However, right at the top of the scale before turning back around, it actually switches from a major scale to a chromatic scale, though it does kind of seem like we're getting ready for the carnival now. With that, we begin our second theme, which is marked Allegro Vivace. The theme came from the introduction to the second act of the opera. It is written in the style of a traditional Italian dance called the Saltarello. And as we listen along to the 6-8 meter, it really does evoke, perhaps stereotypical, scenes of Italy.
and do recall that Berlioz actually spent a great deal of time in Italy after having won the Prix de Rome. Interestingly, he had this to say of his impression of Rome, quote, Rome is the most stupid and prosaic city I know, and notoriously, he didn't really like Italian art and music. So. I don't really know why he elected to write a whole opera about the history of a famous Italian Renaissance artist, although maybe, with, with the fact that we've heard this Saltarello and it sounds really stereotypical, maybe he was leaning really hard into the stereotypes and maybe he was perhaps kind of a condescending manner. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Without seeing the opera, <laughs> we don't know for sure. I'm sorry, we have not seen the opera. Uh, listeners, if you've ever seen the opera in one of its rare modern performances, let us know. Is Berlioz making fun of the Italians? <laughs> Maybe that's one of the reasons why it wasn't well received. Maybe he was just making fun of the Italians and being a little too heavy-handed with it. It was for French audiences, though, so I don't think they would have cared. Or maybe, maybe he was doing it, but it just wasn't funny. I don't know. And the jokes didn't land... Maybe, you know, because he had experienced the Roman culture, whereas the French audiences probably would have gone over their head unless they had also extensively right. traveled to Rome. They just didn't get it, man. <laughs> well, maybe we don't get it either. Again, take all this with a grain of salt. We've not seen the opera and we didn't do any research yes. about that. We researched this overture only. We are wildly speculating. <laughs> So let's get on with some actual facts here. Actually, more of analysis, but, you know, not just our opinions on things. Now, this theme already has some canon-like phrases. For example, here, where the woodwinds play a little upward fourth, then a downward third, and then a downward fifth, and these intervals are all then mimicked by the violins, but just offset by one beat. And in the midst of this lively dance, we get flashes of the love theme again. Remember, this is what it sounded like with the English horn. But now it returns and it's up-tempo in the strings. And as I was saying before, this is much like Ride of the Valkyries <laughs> that we looked at in our previous episode. Where so the many piece parallels. Has, I know. But this piece has the theme returning again and again each time we ramping, we're ramping up the power level to help keep things interesting. And particularly in this iteration, we also play around with building the suspense through the use of some repetition. Now this is a real classic move. We, as the audience, know where the music is going, but Berlioz doesn't let us hear that resolution quite yet. When we do finally hear the resolution, it's quite fun, and also maybe not quite what we expected. There's actually some downward movement in the orchestra in a stepwise fashion from 5 to 1, rather than just a sudden 5 to 1 jump. When the theme next returns, it divides the orchestra. Rather than having just one section play the whole theme through, 
Berlioz begins with the strings, and then they drop out completely to let the winds take over for a bit. The next time, the strings are in canon with the brass. And the next phrase is dainty with just the winds playing the theme very quietly, pianissimo. Which naturally in romantic fashion leads to a full orchestral explosion to finish things out. All about the contrast. And don't think just because this is a concert overture that it can't have a development section. We know this is the development because we keep modulating around and playing the same little passage in each key that we go through. And in another classic move, as we get near the end of the development, the speed in which the keys change increases and the snippet of music that we're working with gets shorter and shorter until we're finally back to the original theme. Pedal along in this theme for a while until Berlioz introduces a new concept. 2-4 time and double meter. This makes it sound like the whole carnival suddenly screeches to a halt. But this is resolved quickly back to 6-8 after just two measures, but now it's a much lighter feel with just the woodwinds lilting back and forth. The strings join in with more melodic material that, thanks to being both legato and somewhat chromatic, makes it sound like the music is just melting away. We also get a true interlude of the original love theme, not just something playing in the background. But this time, it's played on the bassoon! Now, why would Berlioz not have picked the English horn to reprise its original melody? Did he view the bassoon as a more jovial instrument that fit better into the middle of the carnival atmosphere he was trying to create? Or, maybe with its lower, darker timbre than the English horn, is this an even more passionate declaration of love? I think it could possibly be interpreted either of these ways, or maybe even a secret third or fourth way that we hadn't even thought of. It could. <laughs> and and I think if, if you remember, again, coming back to last episode, um, every time that a leitmotif returned in a different instrument, it was because that character or that moment that it was evoking 
was now in some way tied to what was happening on stage. Now, as we mentioned before, Berlioz would not have liked it to be called leitmotifs. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder if in this other school of romantic thought, romantic musical thought, that maybe it just sounded better in the bassoon for this particular moment, according mm -hmm. to Berlioz. Maybe he wasn't really trying to match anything in particular. It <laughs> yeah, just sounded yeah. neat. We're just going too far into this. He just wanted the yeah. bassoon to play it this time. Exactly. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it was the fact that he didn't reprise it in the English horn that caused people to hate the original opera. I doubt that. Very much. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, we have to leave the bassoon behind. So coming out of the bassoon solo, we find Berlioz was actually setting us up for a fugue. background of the fugue is a crescendo from the strings that eventually overpowers the love theme, and of course brings us back to the saltarello. But not for long, soon the orchestra hits a stop again though this time without the benefit of the 2-4 slowdown. We get another canon buildup that starts in the low strings this time, and it works its way up through the whole rest of the orchestra. But we don't really reach a full and satisfying end quite yet. It's almost like another development section here. This time, we have the low brass playing the love theme, but thanks to the more dissonant background from the strings and winds, it sounds much more unsure of itself this time around. Now there is a small climax here, but it's a bit strange. There's a cymbal crash, like we've really worked up to something, but it's just for a little woodwind interjection. Sure, it is a resolution, but not really what we were expecting after all of that buildup and dissonance. And as if that wasn't enough unexpected, Right here at the end, we get an extended passage of the whole orchestra hammering on the downbeats of another 2-4 section. What has become of the triumphant ending we were so hoping for? Well, no fear, Allison, because we do finally get to a coda that remains in 6-8. The brass here plays some nice fanfare lines and downward scales, and then after the strings join up, we finally get our deserved raucous ending with repeated 5 to 1 cadence movement that's all that we've been waiting for.
Now there is, just for good fun, an inverted four chord, which is the subdominant, moving to one right in the last few measures. Now recall that this four to one cadence is known as the plagal cadence and is used frequently in hymns, so it's just a cheeky nod to the actual religious nature of the Italian carnival season. As we conclude that piece, I have to say, I, I rather like that Berlioz decided to create this overture of music and, and how many composers do the same. Sometimes it's to celebrate a great success, but sometimes like in this, it's so that the excellent music of an otherwise abject failure <laughs> does not go overlooked. Well, recall uh, the last time we talked about Berlioz, the piece we were talking about then was also out of an abject failure. Uh, it was the Hungarian March, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And his his best and his best known work, Symphonie Pass Fantastique, was also born out of um, a more personal abject failure. I think he might argue. <laughs> you know, he was a romantic. He needed the failure through to thrive. And through. <laughs> All so, of that Sturm und Drang. Oh, sorry, Berlioz. Using German romantic composer terms. Again. Oh, no. I don't know what it would be in French. Le sadness. <laughs> <laughs> um, isn't it like pathétique or something like that? Maybe. Hey, Tchaikovsky know. would have liked that. Maybe yeah. we'll look at Tchaikovsky next. We haven't visited him for a while. It has been a while. And if you'd like to stick around for that next episode, no promises. Do. We might come up with something else. <laughs> right. Something, you know, wild and wonderful, just as Berlioz's mind would have created. <laughs> do stick around. Leave us reviews on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. That kind of thing really helps us grow. Um, and what also helps us grow is sharing the podcast with someone else that you think might enjoy this content. Won't As say we always say, go, I was time. just going to say, go find someone on the streets. <laughs> oh, I no. won't say it this time. Now it's your turn. Okay, well, there I, I said it. Go on the streets and find someone to share the classical music podcast with. <laughs> and until we meet on the streets of Podcastville next time, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Roman Carnival Overture was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.